the season of Advent is the four Sundays prior to sundown on Christmas Eve. And, and it's a time for us to prepare and to anticipate the coming of the Christ child. Uh, we remember what it was like for the Jews, the Hebrews, to be awaiting the Messiah that had long been waiting for. And it's for us to have our own season of seeking forgiveness, salvation, and for the new beginnings in our own lives. It's a time of awaiting the already, awaiting the already Christ child once again. So in this series, we started last week, we're going to be looking at each of the different gospel writers and how they envision, how they picture this, uh, this birth of the Christ child. We're going to be looking at these similar parts of the story from very distinct and different angles and vantage points, and each author will bring a very different focus on the story of Jesus. You remember last week we talked about the book of Mark. It was the first written, and so we started there, and the book of Mark would have us, have us to slow down have us to turn around and prepare for the way of Jesus. And it's a good message for us because our culture right now tells us that the world would want us to believe that for a moment we're going to put a pause on the normal, regularly scheduled programming and replace it with this massive inbreaking of good cheer and peaceful tidings and remarkable joy, just all of a sudden we're going to stop and eliminate that. We were at Disney this week for, at Epcot, as the, some of the students from Newsom sang at the uh, Christmas candlelight service, and several of our students from the church were there. And, uh, you know, Disney World would like us to believe that it's the happiest place on earth, right? I saw several t-shirts of dads that explained different things in that Disney font, like bibbidi-bobbidi-broke and <laughs> things like that. But Disney would like us to have it be the happiest place on earth, and, and our commercial advertisers would like us to believe that Christmas time is, is the happiest time on earth. But the fact is, is we're not quite in Christmas time yet. We're still in this season of Advent. And uh, besides, for many people, as we just talked about, there's, there's very little about this season that can be merry. There's, there's wars and brokenness and violence and oppression. There's heartache and grief and betrayal. And it, it doesn't magically disappear just when the calendar turns over into the month of December and that we pretend it's not there. All of this merriment and this kind of good cheer doesn't just happen once the calendar turns. There's still underlying hurt and pain in our lives. So it's over and against this picture of uh, Christmas that Matthew brings us into the Advent narrative that he has for us, in keeping with reality. Forget the bright lights and the inflatable Winnie the Pooh snowman or Winnie the Pooh Santas or 
all the other Disney characters we have on our lawns. Forget the inflatable nativity figures and the cheery Christmas cards. Matthew's birth story seems to be straight off the headlines of our front page news. Just this week, we, we had Marines that were involved in a training accident in Japan, and, and at least one that's killed and several still missing. We have, uh, our people are dealing with several hurricanes in the Carolinas and in the Panhandle, and, and uh, people still in our own area dealing with Irma. We have the wildfires in California, the earthquake in Alaska, and the mess that is our current political life of battling of different sides. So Matthew would have us not turn off all that's happening, but show us the reality of the coming Christ child in the mix of this world. Matthew would want us to confront rather than ignore the realities of the hurting world and look to Jesus who is already here. So the book of Matthew. Matthew is a Jewish author, we think, and uh, he's writing for a Jewish audience. It's written in the mid-80s, so it's after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And it focuses a lot on the, the foretelling and the coming back of Christ. The writing in Matthew, last week we talked about Mark and focuses on the doing of Jesus. Matthew focuses much more on the teaching of Jesus. There are the miracles and things that Jesus does as well, but Matthew is filled more with teaching as well. And it points toward the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. There's over 130 Old Testament quotations that point us toward this fulfillment of prophecy. And it opens with, in a very interesting way. Probably many parts of it, uh, the opening, you, you read, you pull open the first page of the New Testament and you're, you see a genealogy for about 17 verses. And probably most of us go, yeah, we'll just start in verse 18 because that's a lot of words I can't say. But there's a really important purpose of why Matthew puts that genealogy there it's to show this prophetic line of David that is fulfilled in Jesus. It has, uh, it's built around that number seven. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the number seven and its importance. There are three sets of uh, 14 in that pairing of those 17 verses, three sets of gener 14 generations. And Jesus is the beginning of the seventh generation. So seventh generation of seven, kind of an ultimate perfect number, seven times seven. And it sets the stage for Jesus that is becoming this next king of Israel. So that's kind of the, the scenery and, the, and the, the place context where we find ourselves in the mix here. And our scripture today is from, the first is from chapter one, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, 
Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place, so that what, was, what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. So Matthew gives us the birth narrative from the perspective of Joseph. And then next week, when we look at Luke, we'll see the birth narrative from the perspective of Mary. So Joseph, Matthew calls him a righteous man. But like some of the, the righteous men we've encountered in the scriptures, still encounters difficulty. Being righteous doesn't make one immune to difficulty. Our allegiance to God doesn't make us immune to heartache and difficulty and disappointment. But it's in what the angel says next that we find some comfort. It's, the angel doesn't say, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of the problem, just sit back and relax. The angel doesn't say, you know, good news, things are going to get better. And he definitely doesn't say, you know, suck it up. Christmas time is the best time of the year. It's the hap, hap, happiest time of the year. Angel doesn't say any of that. The, the angel says, do not be afraid. Or in the good King James Version, fear not. Do not be afraid, he tells Joseph. And I got to believe that Joseph probably said, well, that's easy for you to say. Because I'm faced with a stained reputation. All the plans I've made for my life, I'm seeing come crumbling down in front of me. And now Joseph is faced with a choice when the angel says, do not be afraid. The angel goes on to say, why not to be afraid? Do not be afraid because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph is faced with, with some choices. He can, he can make the easy choice. You know, save yourself. You know, throw Mary under the bus. Go on with your life. You can, you can make the self-centered safe choice. You can trust in yourself, Joseph. Or you can make the hard choice. You, you can stand with Mary when it doesn't quite make sense. You can endure the ridicule and the gossip and the damage to your reputation. 
You can make the God or the other person-focused choice, and you can choose to trust in God. You know, so the easy way, Joseph, or, or the harder way. And the angel doesn't make it a whole lot easier. He says, don't be afraid. Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and is going to give birth to a son. And you're going to call him Jesus and he's going to, be, he's going to save people from their sins. Again, I'm, Joseph's probably going, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure if everyone in the village is going to buy that story. It's a good story, but I'm not sure everyone's going to buy it. The angel doesn't give proof of the immaculate conception, but instead gives a promise. Carry through with this pregnancy and keep your family together, and the child to be born will be the savior of the world. And Joseph here introduces us to the central theme, to one of the central themes of Matthew, that we must choose to follow Jesus especially when it's costly and difficult to do. Several chapters later, when the Jesus is calling the disciples, follow me, leave everything and follow me. And Joseph is the one who introduces us to this concept, this difficult, this hard choice to choose Jesus when it's difficult. We must choose to follow him no matter what. So there's Jesus the good guy, if this was a Western film, this would be Jesus on the white horse wearing the white hats, you know, the hero of the town. And then on the other side of that, we're about to encounter our villain, the black hat wearing Herod the Great. And he shows up in the town, and you know, of course, in Westerns, the town is not big enough for the two of them. Maybe they just need to build bigger towns, maybe, I don't know. Now Herod, in contrast to Joseph, is a heavy-handed bully, a tyrannical ruler whose mind is, is filled with paranoid thoughts. He, he's killed his grandfather-in-law, he's killed one of his wives, and he's come to see his sons as a threat, and he ends up executing three of his sons. There's even a saying that says that uh, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. Because Herod was a Jew, and he would not eat a pig. So the pigs were safe, but his sons were not. It's better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. Herod saw himself as a, as a self-made man whose destiny was under his own control. However, he was very, really very insecure. And he was trying to find ways to puff himself up. So, so he would mix his loyalties between the Jews and those of Rome, depending on which situation was most advantageous to him. He went about very elaborate building projects. He ended up rebuilding the temple, imported gold and wood to rebuild the temple. And the Jews thought that he was doing it for them. But really, he was doing it for himself to build himself up in the eyes of Rome, that he was doing such a good job that he dread for, he so, so wanted to, to be a part of Rome. He wanted to get the next promotion to be a bigger part of the Roman Empire. 
So he imported the gold, he rebuilt the Temple Mount, and he built many, many fortresses and palaces for himself so that he would be seen in a better light in the eyes of Rome. If you ever travel to the Holy Lands, you'll see so many different pa- uh, um, palaces and, and fortresses built. Masada and uh, the Herodium are two of those spectacular buildings that Herod built. But he wanted this to be seen well in the eyes of Rome and in those of he ruled in Israel. And we pick up the story in chapter 2. Now this story is actually an epiphany story. This is not even a Christmas story, because this is the coming of the Magi. This is after Christmas, after the 12 days of Christmas. The Magi come on the scene. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. I kind of picture the Magi in Jerusalem kind of walking around, trying to find other Magi-like folks. You know, where do you, where do you, we've seen the star, so where is this king of the Jews supposed to have been born? And Herod gets wind of this. And Herod hears this, and he was troubled, and, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. And he gathered all the chief priests and all the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah. Because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod and right now what I see as a great little CIA sting, picks up the wise men and takes them back to the palace and tries to deceive them. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star was to first appear. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, Report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went and, and looked the star they had seen in the east, went ahead of them until they stood over the place where the child was. So Herod hears about the Magi, hears about this Christ child and where he's to be born, and he wants to get from the, the Magi to deceive them of, tell me where this place is, because I want to go worship him as well. But that's not exactly what Herod wants to do. He wants to get rid of this boy king. And so Herod, uh, this results in him scheming to get this location. And when that doesn't quite work out for him, because we see and we'll talk about on Epiphany that the wise men go and they worship the child and they bring the three gifts And and then they're warned in a dream to head home a different way, and they bypass going back to Herod. So when Herod gets wind of that, that they haven't fulfilled what he thought they were going to do, he tries a different route, and, and he makes a choice to murder young children in the Bethlehem area, those who are are two and under, 
based on the timeline that the wise men gave him. So if I can't eliminate the one threat, I'm going to eliminate all the possible threats. But Jesus is safe because Jesus, Joseph has been warned in a dream, and, and Joseph takes Mary and takes Jesus, and they flee to, Israel, or to Egypt until it's safe for them to return. So when faced, when, uh, faced with fear, fear of losing his power, Herod makes the self-focused choices, unlike Joseph. He makes the self-focused choices that would, would puff him up and would make him be better so that he could have more wealth and more power and more authority. So what does uh, these two paradigms, these two juxtapositions, these two ends of Joseph and Herod have to do with us today? When obedient, with obedient Joseph and defiant Herod, Matthew sums up the two possible responses that we have when we are filled with fear. Joseph, faced with the fear of scandal and trauma and repercussions for, for Mary's unplanned pregnancy, Joseph responds with obedience, making the harder, selfless choice to trust in God's power. And our friend Herod, paranoid with fear of losing control, power, authority, and his perceived destiny, responds with defiance and violence, making the easier, self-centered choice to trust in his own power rather than the power of God. Several months ago, we were in our regular staff meeting, and we spent a good bit of time sharing what we call God sightings and prayer requests. And it's just a time of seeing where, where we've seen God moving and working in the life of our church, in the life of our community, and in our own personal lives. And, and um, Mark was sharing um, some of what he's been doing, and, and it's a combination of prayer requests. And, and he shared that he's been really been focused on, on, on working out and eating well and trying to get back into shape and and he brought up this, this phrase that he uses to remind himself that his, his daughter reminded him of. And it was about, says it's about doing the hard. It's about making the hard choices of what I'm going to eat and put in my, my body and, and about how much rest I'm going to get and if I'm going to work out and about making those hard choices. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at making the choice like, at night in bed going, after I've eaten too much, going, okay, I'm never going to do that again. And tomorrow I'm going to get up early and take a walk. And then when it comes to make the hard choice and the alarm goes off, not so much. But Mark was talking about doing, it's about doing the hard. And that's what this is about here for us. It's Joseph, Joseph's decides to do the hard it could have been a lot easier for joseph just to to get rid of mary to call her kind of well she's a quack you know she's she's got mind trouble she's saying she's you know pregnant with the holy spirit what does that mean you know she you know she probably you know you know what she did to do that right she's not pregnant with the holy spirit that would be an easy thing for joseph to do 
But he makes the hard choice. He's doing the hard to accomplish the promise that is yet to come. Angel says, do not be afraid. The child that is within Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And you, the child that is to be born, is called Jesus. And he will be the savior of the world. No pressure, Joseph. It's about doing the hard. Joseph decides to do the hard. Herod decides to do the easy. Ultimately, here is what Matthew's birth narrative tells us. No matter who, no matter what you are going through, God is in it with you. Your life may not look a lot like Joseph's now, and, and the pain of your struggle may not be, may be so intense that you cannot see through the fog of it. But there is a redemptive hand already at work. God is at work in the midst of uncertainty because God lives in our ambiguities. That's how our mysterious God works. And even if your life is calm and serene and peaceful, watch out. God is at work. You may not see your own comparisons to the life of Herod right now, but but they are in there with all of us. And as long as there is an inkling within us that flirts with the fallacy that we are self-made women and men, as we go out and we walk around with our puffed-up chests and our thumb-nosing swagger, God can use many different ways to get our attention, to conform us to the likeness of a humble servant rather than a prideful, self-focused individual. As it is, when, when life is going well, sin seems to creep up. Sin seems to exert its greatest influence on a prideful, gluttony-filled, lazy individual impeding the way of holy living. When things are good is when we have to watch out because that's when the sin of our life creeps in. So this Advent season, may you experience the grace of God in the midst of your every moment of your lives. May you come to know the joy that comes in trusting God in the midst of your hardship as you journey through the ups and downs of life one step at a time. And most of all, and as Wesley says, and best of all, remember that God is with us. Amen. Amen.